Welcome to Gas Chat. The petrochemical industry needs fossil fuels to exist. And because it is downstream, the industry is a profit booster to the gas industry. Or it was. The crash in the oil price and the global impact of COVID-19 has seen oil and gas exploration and production and the downstream petrochemical industry all showing signs of severe stress. The question we're asking on Gas Chat today is, does the world post-COVID need more petrochemical facilities? I'm joined today by IEFA's US Director of Finance, Tom Zanzillo. I'm also joined by Bruce Robertson, IEFA's LNG gas analyst based in Australia. A warm welcome to you, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The world will be seeing a good deal more investment in the petrochemical sector. Whether it needs it really is an open question. But what's most important to keep in mind is that they have a structural profit problem now. And the world is looking for alternatives. And those alternatives, I think, in the coming years are going to make the profit picture for the industry even more difficult. And what about markets? I understand that India is considering imposing a COVID-19 tax on some petrochemical imports to help protect its domestic industry. Are you seeing similar arrangements in other markets around the world? We anticipate that. And of course, last year and in the early part of this year um, in the United States with their dispute with China um, was highly disruptive to these markets over the precise issues of who's going to be importing and exporting what to each country and on what terms the petrochemical industry took it. Particularly difficult hit in the middle 2019 and the end of 2019 over just these issues. And these issues will continue now. And anywhere we're seeing the expansion of the domestic cracker facilities, fractionators, and plastics and petrochemical manufacturing plants, you're going to see those governments be highly sensitive to allowing imports and maybe even having some trouble with some of the joint ventures. I know ExxonMobil and Qatar are doing some additional um, work and ExxonMobil and Saudi Arabia are doing some additional petrochemical investments around the world. And my, my expectation is that those are going to be increasingly difficult for each country to um, agree to as the market tightens. Your thoughts, Bruce? The fact of the matter is, is that for gas at the moment and LNG prices are at historic lows. That's both in domestic markets and in offshore markets. And the price of petrochemicals are also um, much, much lower than they were just a couple of years ago. So we've seen large declines in all these markets. We're seeing LNG prices in Asia at the moment below US $2 an MMBTU, which is extraordinarily cheap. It's actually as cheap as the domestic prices are in the US. So these companies are losing money everywhere. And I think that that's the key point at the moment. We are in a very troubled time for the LNG gas and petrochemical industries. Yeah, I think the market works most efficiently for their profits when the cost of the gas or for the plastics, it's uh, ethane, the gas derivative, is relatively low 
and stable, but not so low as to bankrupt the producers of the natural gas, which is what is effectively happening because of oversupply. And then in the manufacturing process, well, you want that low input price, but on your sale of your product, your whatever it is, it could be ammonia or plastics or whatever, you want that price to be higher and modestly increasing. That's a sweet spot, you know, and it requires on the outtake a healthy growth in those sectors of the economy that use the uh, agricultural products and use the plastics. And right now you have the slowdown from the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, the rates of growth that the industry wanted were not being achieved and were not going to be achieved for a substantial amount of time. So you have a, they, they were having a, a hard time. The pandemic um, has made it even more difficult. And then, of course, they've oversupplied the market, which drives the prices down. So if they had one or two of those problems, most corporations and industries can manage that. But when you have the cumulative effect of a slower economy, overproduction, some instances, recycling competition in the plastics side, and then competition from within uh, various companies. When you have that combination of factors, you have a structural problem that is not easily remedied, and their profit picture, you know, suffers. You know, if I was to just go a little bit broader, part of this whole scramble by the oil and gas sector into petrochemicals is really a defensive strategy. It is a strategy where they are resigned to the fact that they will be making less money. Over the years, the petrochemical part of the oil and gas sector was a reasonable performer profit-wise, but nothing like oil and gas profits that were being generated through extraction and sale those markets were far more lucrative and and far more profitable. And petrochemical was kind of like the second cousin um, from a finance point of view. And now, because the oil and gas sector, as Bruce has been talking about and I've been talking about, is in a um, massive contraction and has been for much of the last 10 years, that the sector is looking for other ways to invest. And they said, well, let's push into petrochemicals. They had a couple of good years and the prices, you know, when Bruce said the prices were in the 30 to 40 cents a pound at point of, you know, uh, level, they were over a dollar. Um, so that's a huge difference. And so the industry has changed. And, uh, and that area where they thought they would be able to go for profits in the petrochemical sector to, to maybe make up for some of the losses in the other area are also not there. So what we look at is that the industry itself overall is in a state of decline, financial decline, even as it produces more and more oil, gas, and plastics. It is a system that probably can't go on for very much longer. In the um, whole scheme of things, the oil and gas sector remains in last place in the world stock market, where it used to be the leader of the world's economy. And so it's a very different scene right now and the avenues that they're trying to open up for profitability all seem to be producing far less than they originally thought. 
It's interesting, Tom. Can I just tease that out a little bit with you? You, you were saying that not only is the whole industry challenged globally, but we are actually seeing that unravel right now in the US. We are seeing a lot more bankruptcies in the US, aren't we, of, of oil and gas companies, particularly the fracking companies? Yeah, the fracking companies, they are producing so much and the system has to produce so much because of their business model. So they have a technology from, an, uh, from a drilling and efficiency standpoint, which is quite remarkable. And on the other hand, they have a business model that is driving the price down to the point where they're no longer profitable. And they have not been profitable for 10 years. They just keep rolling debt and the borrowing and then drilling more and selling some, but the price keeps going down because there's so much of a surplus that they don't have uh, anywhere really to sell it, even though there is demand for it. And that's what fracking has produced, a massive oversupply of both oil and gas. And that has driven prices down to the point of being dysfunctional economically. On the oil side, it's particularly difficult because most of the world's oil can only be profitably extracted you know, above $70 a barrel, maybe more, um, some of the places of the world. And uh, this is driving down in the U.S., it's driving the prices down into the uh, 20s and $30 a barrel. So you have a really serious problem caused by the oil and gas industry itself. One of the uh, leaders in the U.S. called it self-suicide. And I think that's a really good way of uh, understanding what's going on with fracking. They've never made a substantial amount of money. They currently cannot pay their loans back. They're pleading with the federal government for uh, support and, uh, and blaming it on the pandemic. But this was a problem long in the making. And if they even get some support from the federal government, it will be eaten up relatively quickly and they will go back to doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Currently, globally, the, the oil price is only in the mid-30s. I mean, it is a bit higher than the, the, the West Texas price, but it's still way, 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 as you were saying, below where they can make any money. And this is the key point. You know, we have the US government looking to prop up fracking industry. And in Australia, we have our Minister for Energy talking about a gas-fired recovery. And the world markets aren't allowing that to occur. I mean, the prices are just too low to see the Australian economy pulled out of the mire by the oil and gas and petrochemical industries. Yeah, we, we had a very interesting exchange on one part of our natural gas discussions in the United States. We do a lot of work on the electricity sector where natural gas has basically put coal out of business because of the low price. At the same time, what the um, low natural gas prices did is it lowered the price of electricity so that any energy source that wants to enter into the production of electricity in the United States has to do it relatively cheaply. And the only competitor for natural gas is wind and solar. And they have been increasingly taking up market share although natural gas remains the dominant form of electricity with about 30% of market share and uh, renewables and about half that and coal in the low 20s maybe, but dropping quickly. And so we've been um, doing um, some research on uh, how the economy is going to come out of the pandemic and what is likely to lead 
the economic recovery and we were having a debate. In the U.S., what normally helps the economy come out of recovery are utilities, the electricity producers, for lots of reasons. They are usually better positioned to do that. And so the question was, what will lead the utilities? Will it be more natural gas or will it be renewable energy? Our analysis tells us the choice for in the U.S., there's all these state boards that the state boards will be choosing renewable energy for reasons of volatility and uh, lack of inflationary cost increases and a whole series of reasons that it's financially better. And we were amazed when we were put up against the uh, fossil fuel industry's consultants to have a uh, discussion that we thought was going to be adversarial, and they agreed with us. They said that renewable energy would be leading the utility sector out of the recession and that the natural gas and there's a small amount of oil interests were not going to be the economic choices to be made in the United States any longer. It was amazing to us that the fossil fuel sector's lead public consultants on the issue found the same thing we did. In this cycle now, in some, in some ways, the pandemic kicks off a new cycle, but it's, it doesn't erase what was going on before. And what, what's been going on before is natural gas has been taking coal's market share for a number of years, and renewable energy has been proving to be efficient and effective. But now we're in a new period, and there has to be some new discussions by our electricity system, and there have to be some new capital choices being made. There may be a slower rate of growth that doesn't require as much generation, but there still needs to be replacement and new investment. In the um, 500 million to a trillion range over the next you know, 10 years, and that should be, from all of our calculations, that should be to the advantage of renewable energy and with a far less, not no choices on natural gas, not, you know, there will be some projects that will be, but the rate of growth will be to the advantage of the renewable sector. Well, very similar things are happening here, Tom. I mean, it is very different. We have very high cost gas, so gas really hasn't been a large feature of our electricity system. You know, our electricity system is dominated by coal still, but those plants are coming to their end of their lives. We are seeing wind and solar projects still go ahead in the COVID environment. We see Asiona in Queensland build the Kennedy Gap wind farm, which is you know, over a gigawatt wind farm, a global scale wind farm. And that was given the go ahead in the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was quite amazing. While all these gas companies were withdrawing from investment, we saw large scale investment going into renewables. So we have a situation where renewables are forging ahead and gas is is floundering despite what our government and semi-government authorities are are spruiking. Are we likely to see the oil and gas industry pivot to renewables? I think one of the things that that are happening that is both an indication of some hope but mostly to me in the immediate sense it's an indication of the weakness of the sector. And watching what the major oil and gas companies are doing on the broader question of their investment strategy going forward, 
the interesting thing for me, and I've been involved with the industry for almost 20 years, is that they are all doing something different. Uh, for many, many, many years, each of the large oil major companies moved in lockstep, and they all were drilling, they all were you know, moving product around the world, and this was um, meeting the uh, demands of the economy, and it was meeting the uh, growth needs around the world. That is no longer the case. The growth needs are different and varied, and the companies themselves are becoming more varied. So you'll see Shell putting out feelers to maybe become an electric company, which I think would entail them being much more involved in the renewable sector than they have been up till now. And they have smaller projects, you know, by measure, but they have moved in that direction. Some of the European oil and gas concerns are doing the same thing. You know, then you have ExxonMobil, which says basically they're doing some biochemical projects, which may result in some positive steps. But by and large, they are an oil and gas extraction company and will remain that similarly to Chevron as well. And so it's very mixed. It's uncertain as to what the ultimate outcome would be. But the very uncertainty of that outcome is what weakens them from an investment point of view. And it will continue going forward until there's some clearer path. But right now, the industry is in last place in the stock market. And it will remain in last place in the stock market because it is failing on profits and has no clear plan forward Briefly, I mean, we've been involved in a rather large regulatory f- dispute in Texas, which produces most of the oil and gas in the United States, 40%. And the um, larger oil and gas independents have been asking for government regulation, believe it or not. And they, their major statement is, we, meaning the oil and gas sector, have no solution. They are publicly stating that. Wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Because of the pandemic, there's a massive oversupply in the United States and the storage capacity is, you know, it's reaching its uh, tipping point. And uh, so they were asking for regulations. Uh, and the, that section of the oil industry was saying, you know, cut production by mandate, by legal mandate. And uh, the ExxonMobil and all the other ones said, no, 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 you know, we don't need to do that. But the independents were. And in the course of the debate, the independents who are the frackers that we were just talking about and suffering badly said, look, we don't have a way out of this. And, and this idea that the uh, big fish are going to come in and eat the little fish and then they're going to, meaning ExxonMobil, buying up the independents, you know, is a dream because ExxonMobil is uh, worth less than half of what it was uh, in just a number of years ago and is in no shape to buy up anything. And, uh, and they need some kind of way to um, find a, uh, another way out. And, but the bigger interests in the oil and gas sector are saying, no, we're not going to get any further involved in the, in the government in that way. And we'll just assume let the independents fail and we'll see what happens. And, and there is just no solution. They don't have a solution. And then there's petrochemicals. This was the last bastion, the last hope. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the prices aren't telling you it's the last hope, though. Yep. They got an awful lot of it, and, uh, and people are not going to pay an awful lot for it as a result. 
the oil and gas industry here just has its hooks into both sides of politics. Ah, in the US, they used to command that kind of political power. They really did. You know, the equities were making 20%, and we were on the side with them on private equity deals in the multiple billions, making 50 to 1,000%, right? So the, the fossil fuel sector was making a large amount of money. You know, it, right now, that same pension fund is making single-digit returns on 10% of what they had in the equity portfolio in fossil fuels, and there's zero in the private equity um, side. So it doesn't deserve the political power it has anymore. But, you know, it's kind of like everybody's saying, well, they're going to come back, but they're not coming back. They're not coming back, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, used to be you would um, exploit the environment in order to make profits. Now you're exploiting the environment and you're not making any profits. Like, what the hell is the point here? Now it's gratuitous exploitation of the environment and it doesn't even produce economic benefits on the other side. You know, what the hell? I mean, what are they thinking? You know, I don't know. I, I think they've all gone crazy myself. <laughs> Certainly sometimes here it seems like the whole world's gone crazy. I mean, you know, when you have yeah. the energy minister coming out and saying it's a gas-fired recovery and we can't even produce gas here, you know, for the domestic consumers at a reasonable price, you know. And then they quote the US business model as being the thing to follow. And you're going, but that's... A it failed. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> Worked real well, guys. <laughs> and in the Permian Basin, from 2017 to just in early 2020, Exxon made, through those three years, less than a billion dollars. And the only money they made was when Trump gave them a tax cut in one quarter. And they made, they made on that tax cut, they made six billion. <laughs> but... In three years, they've made about $1 billion. That's fracking. That's their fracking investment. It's ridiculous. Anybody who tells you that's going to make money, tell me, yes, you can make a small fortune in fracking as long as you start out with a big one. Anyway, I stole that from Mark Twain. That was his view. He said you can make a lot of money in speculation, small fortune in speculation, as long as you have a big one to start with. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Well, at some point, you know, as long as the subsidies don't get in the way, at some point, gas prices have to have to double or triple in the US to get them to still drill, don't they? They're not capable of it. You know, they, they just keep producing it. And every time it goes up a little bit, they go crazy. Producing more drives the price back down. It's like they're, you know, you know, like repeating the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. I mean, that's what they just keep doing. It's <laughs> The true definition of nuts. And my view is if they do raise the price of um, natural gas, that means the price of plastics goes up and they become less competitive. That means the price of electricity goes up and we have an alternative, right? And so that'll stimulate the public service commissions who are in each state choosing natural gas even less because of price volatility and because renewable energy is cheaper. Right, so they, they don't win, they can't win. This is over, <laughs> you know? When it's too low, they can't make their bills. If it starts going up, 
there are alternatives. Essentially, you're saying you get demand destruction, you know, if it starts going up, you kill your own. Well, you, yeah, you, you have two markets now, two real markets. One of them is a fossil fuel industry that is um, older and, and more mature and in decline. And you have a, in that sector, you have a renewables market. And that's on the rise. It's got a reasonably robust M&A operation and it's got a positive outlook. It's anti-inflationary and they're going along and they interact with each other, you know, and uh, the interaction is to the advantage of the renewable sector, you know, like natural gas lowered the price of electricity. And then renewable sector came in and said, well, we could do it lower. And that then became how one affected the other. And now they're putting natural gas on the run, just as natural gas put coal on the run. And most people then look at natural gas and standard envelope supply demand, right? Well, you can't do it in regular supply and demand if there's an alternative industry coming in and, you know, and messing with your demand and, and messing with your production costs on the supply side. That's not supply and demand anymore. That's, you got a supply and demand element and then you have an external competitor um, who was driving you nuts, you know. That's happening in plastics with recycling as well, lesser extent. It's happening in transport with electric vehicles, lesser extent. The supply and demand theory that they work on and the growth theory really is limited. It's, it's not that it doesn't exist anymore, it's just very limited because there's a supply and demand theory going on in renewable and there's supply and demand going on in all those other sectors. And they weren't there, they never had to compete. They had mono relative monopolies for 30 years. So we all paid the piper, right? Now we don't have to pay so much if we don't want to. So they're not so important anymore from financially. You know? And they say, oh, yeah, it happened to us because of the pandemic. It did not. <laughs> it happened to them over the last 10 years. And the pandemic to them is an opportunity to, um, you know, to exploit. And, uh, and everybody buys it, you know. I was going to, like, send them a letter saying, I have an extra bathtub if you have extra oil and gas that you need to store somewhere. <laughs> I'll rent it out to you cheap. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, it's, it's just, and they all believe it. So you just sit there and listen and say, well, this is not what you think this is, you know. <laughs> so. Hey, Tom, thank you very much for joining. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more in-depth analysis, please visit our website at iefa.org. That's ieefa.org, where you'll find the latest commentary about oil and gas investment trends and how the energy transition is playing out globally. We look forward to having your company again soon. Gas Chat is a production of the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, commonly known as IEFA. The Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis is a public interest think tank. This industry overview should not be taken as personal or financial advice. Please refer to our website at iefa.org, I-E-E-F-A dot O-R-G, for our disclosures and our mission statement.